Good evening. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Grace Downtown, and we are so glad that you are with us to worship this evening. As Pastor Steve said, we are uh, continuing our series called The Story of God, where we are walking through in just a few weeks the entire narrative uh, of the story of God, which we find in the Bible. So in just a minute, we will jump into the second part of that story. But first, I want to welcome you and just say we're glad you're here, and we want to help you get connected here at Grace. Um, one note is if you can help us out, we are starting to have fuller and fuller crowds now that the semester is back, and um, I think this series is bringing some folks in as well. So when you come in each week, if you can make your way towards the front, no one wants to sit in the front. Uh, but people that come in after the second or third song definitely don't want to make their way to the front. So um, as you come in each week, if you can just make your way to the front, especially on meal weeks where we have more of a full house, that will really help us be hospitable to folks that are arriving a little late. Uh, another thing that I want to, want to mention that is a great way to get connected is for our ladies. Uh, next Saturday, we are having a women's conference. We're one church in two locations, and our other location is in North Liberty, and they're a women's conference on Saturday. It's all day Saturday. And the theme of that conference is uh, talking about, it's really asking the question, what are we rooted in when anxieties of life come? We're talking a lot about that here tonight. It's a subject that I myself am pretty familiar with in my own life, the topic of anxiety. Well, that all-day conference next Saturday will be a great chance to get to know some folks if you're new, um, but also is a great time to come in here teaching on how you can stay rooted even during seasons and times of anxiety. So ladies, I encourage you to check that out on Saturday up in North Liberty. I want to answer a question for you as we jump in here tonight, and that question is, why are we doing this series? Um, it's a little bit different than what you're probably used to if you're regularly here at Grace. We typically go through books of the Bible. Um, but we are going through this more topic, the story of God. Um, and I want to answer that question of why we're doing this series. And the answer is because we feel like there is a story that connects all of us and really connects us in our common humanity. We feel like the story of God, which we find in the Bible, God's words, um, as we look in the Bible, we really see the story of not only God, but we really see the story of who we are as well. So we think that this story is not just a religious story. It's not just a, a story of Christianity as a religion. It's really the story of God. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of the world. It's the story of you. We find ourselves in this story. So we feel like it's important to know what this story is. And beyond that, pertaining to our topic for tonight, we feel like there's an aspect of the story that unites all of us in a common way. And that aspect of the story is the aspect of pain, of suffering, of chaos in our lives. That's a common thing that connects all of us in our lives. As you look around the world, what is it that you see? There's moments of great beauty. We just sang about that a few songs ago. A couple of things I've experienced even just this weekend. There was a huge rainbow yesterday. And that rainbow was there for longer than I have ever seen a rainbow before. And it was almost a full rainbow. We went to my son's soccer game. His soccer games last about 40, 45 minutes. And it was there almost the entire game. I have never seen a rainbow last that long. There are moments like that in this world. Tonight we have my friend Tabitha up here playing cello. 
sitting in the front row praying as the worship team was practicing hearing the cello, I was just thinking, I love the cello. It brings so much, such a full sound, especially to a room like this. I think the music, the elevator music in heaven is going to be cello music. I love cello music. It just, it meets me somewhere deep inside of me. There are moments like that, big and small, randomly throughout our life. But you and I both know two things. They're too few. They're few and far between. And they don't last very long. That rainbow that is such a beautiful thing lasted 40 minutes and it's the longest one I've ever seen. Usually we're lucky to get a glimpse of a rainbow that lasts a few minutes. These moments of life, this majestic beauty, they're very short-lived and they're few and far between. Why is that? That's really what we're asking here tonight. As we look at the world, we see a world that is broken. That is not the way that we intuitively know that it should be. Let's start with family. Family is divided, families in chaos, families in brokenness. Just a couple of examples from family. Parents are supposed to be the greatest example of God and His love to their children. But far too often, we don't have that example and we don't give that example. To our kids. And for some of us, the story with our parents is even more complicated and broken than that. Marriage is supposed to reflect God's love. God says, I'm giving you this relationship, this human institution, but actually it's my institution. I'm giving you marriage, and I want it to reflect my love for my church. But we live in a nation, in a culture, in a world of broken marriages. Here at our church, one of the uh, ministries that I'm most excited about that does so much in our community and really throughout our world is our orphan and adoption ministry. I love that we have an orphan and adoption ministry in our church. It also breaks my heart that we have an orphan and adoption ministry in our church. There are kids that don't have biological family that can take care of them. We live in a world of brokenness. We live in a world with racial divides. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the end of all things, will end with that in our very last sermon. When we talk about that, we'll talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb when those from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will come together and feast together. Yet we look at our world and we are so racially divided, even in churches far too often. We have political divides. Do I need to give any commentary on that? Are we familiar with that? I think we're very familiar with that. You can't even say anything on social media without people hating you, hating you. So much anger about politics. We live in a world where we witness in our own bodies And in creation itself, decay and disease. How many of you have been to a Hawkeye football game since they started doing the wave? Raise your hand if you've been able to be a part of the wave. Thank you for waving. Um, It's a very, very moving experience. Uh, My wife and I were able to take two of our boys to a Hawkeye game a couple of years ago and participate in the wave. It's just an incredibly 
moving experience. It's an amazing thing. The commentators on ESPN say it is the greatest tradition now in all of college football. Opposing teams do it, referees do it. It's known all over the, the nation now that this takes place at the University of Iowa. It's a great thing, the wave. Have you ever stopped your, and asked yourself, why do we have to do that? Why are there kids in the hospital that can't come to the game? Why are there kids that will never leave that hospital room alive? Why does that happen in the world? Why do I get to sit with my two boys and watch the football game? And those kids have to be up there. It's just broken and not fair. Here's the scariest part as we look at brokenness in our world, we see it in our own lives as well. We see this brokenness, we see this chaos, we see this decay in our own lives, our own relationships, our own families, and our own bodies. The real problem here is that the brokenness is not just out there somewhere. We really find it in our own hearts and lives. The problem is if the problem is inside of us, we can't get away from it. There's nothing we can do to mitigate it. There's nothing we can do to numb the pain. There's nothing we can do to run away fast enough from it. There's not enough we can achieve, enough things we can experience to make the brokenness, the pain, the chaos, the decay go away. Last week, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's good design for the world, for humanity, for humanity's relationship with their creator. He creates the world and us for flourishing. He designs everything good. We read this as we started our service tonight. He created everything good and to flourish. And he created things so the world would flourish and our relationships would flourish and our relationship with God would be intimate and that it would flourish. That's how God designed things. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2 as we looked at last week. But we don't have to turn very far in Genesis to start seeing that something has happened. In Genesis chapter 9, God sees the world and it says that every intention of man's heart all the time was bent on evil. By Genesis 9. And so God selects one righteous family. He sees one righteous man in his family, Noah. And he tells Noah to build an ark. You may know the story. And he invites uh, Noah's family onto this boat and uh, two of every kind of animal onto this boat. And there's a flood and God wipes out everything else that's not on the boat. So by chapter 9, we have this story of God pouring out his punishment on humanity. And lest we think think that Noah is the hero of the story, a few years later, after the whole boat thing and the waters subside, Noah plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and his son finds him naked in his tent. These kind of stories, and there are plenty of others, leave us, even when we read the Bible asking the question, what went wrong? When we look at God's design for human flourishing in Genesis 1 and 2, and then we turn just a few pages and start seeing what humanity does to itself and does to its relationship with God, we ask the question, what is wrong? What went wrong here? We see a rainbow, and then a few minutes later, 
we're being reminded of the chaos that is in this world and the brokenness in our own heart. And we say, what went wrong? We feel all warm and fuzzy inside when we're waving up to the kids in the hospital, but then we think about, why are those kids up there? What went wrong? We can look at our own lives, our own relationships. We can look at the past and say, what went wrong? We must deal with this question and this problem. We try all kinds of ways to mitigate this pain, to get past this pain. We try all kinds of things like human reasoning and our own experience, our own intellect. We try to live by the culture that we find ourselves swimming in. We find people completely rejecting the idea that there is a God, an atheistic perspective. We have the agnostic perspective that says, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if you can know there's a God or if there is a God out there. We couldn't know him. These are the different ways that we try to mitigate this problem, this question of if there was a God, when I look at this world and when I look at life and when I look at human history, I don't see a loving God causing anything to flourish. So as we jump into our text this week in Genesis chapter 3, we need to go back, as Dan read the scripture in verses 1 through 10, we need to go back to a couple of verses from last week. So please grab a Bible and open it up to Genesis chapter 2. It's at the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, and in verse 15, we see this prohibition that God gives to Adam and Eve that we see broken in chapter 3. So I will read it here in Genesis 2. And actually, I'll read verse 9 and then 15 through 17 of Genesis chapter 2. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall die. So uh, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he gives him work to do. The words that are used here is work and keep. Adam is tasked with working the ground and keeping God's creation. Ultimately, what God is telling him is to cultivate the resources that God has provided for him. That's what God did in the creation story. We talked about this last week. Took the materials of the earth and brought order where there was chaos. He's asking Adam to do the same in the garden. And then he asks him to keep the garden. This is priestly language. He is to keep guard over God's good creation. We are also told that there is moral freedom. They have something that they can do, a tree they can eat from, and other trees they can eat from, and things that they can do, and a tree they cannot eat from. They're given this chance of stepping away from God's love and going their own way. And if they do, they're told that they will be aware of evil and that it will not be good for them. That's what they're told. 
God is trying to protect them. God wants them to flourish, but they're told they will have consequences if they go their own way. So that gets us caught up, and let's look at Genesis chapter 3, which is our text for today. I'm not going to read everything up here on the screen, but it'll be behind me, and you can follow along. We're going to go verse by verse through Genesis 3 and take a look at the aspects of the fall. So in Genesis 3, 1 through 3, we are introduced to this enemy. In verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We need to ask the question here, where did this enemy come from? If God created all these things and it's good in Genesis 1 and 2, we're now introduced to the serpent, an enemy. Where does he come from? When we're reading a story, when we're watching a movie, and a new character comes into play, we need to be introduced to this character. Now, we're not given very much at this point in the story about who and what this character is. Um, We're not supposed to look ahead in this story, but I'll give you a little spoiler alert here. Here's some verses that you can look up that give us some clues about where this enemy came from. I'll leave this up here for just a minute. But this enemy, we believe, we understand from the full counsel of Scripture to be Satan, the enemy of God the absolute representation of evil and that which is against God. If we read these scriptures, we get a picture of an angel that takes a third of the angels with him and is against God and his glory. Satan and his angels want glory that belongs only to God. And so this enemy comes and tempts Adam and Eve. And back to verses 1 through 3 here, we see the serpent tempt Adam and Eve. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Here, we see the enemy using words to tempt, to confuse to pervert and to manipulate. When God intends words to name, to worship, to bless, the enemy is taking something God created words and is using them against God and his people. Eve here, also we need to make a note here that Eve states a prohibition that God did not actually give to Adam and Eve. She says we can't even touch the tree. It's not in the prohibition of what God told them they could not do. Let's continue on and we'll hear a little bit more about that in verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. We need to make a note here that he is saying he, he can give them the opportunity if they eat from this fruit, they will be like God. But we just read in Genesis 1 and 2 that they were made in the image of God. They had all of God that they would ever need, yet the enemy is coming saying, there's more. You're missing out. God is holding out on you. They have all that God intends for them. When we sin, like Eve, we pervert, we forget, and we ignore the words of God. We ignore, pervert, or ignore 
the words of God. Let's take a look at verse 6. There's a very key component here. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and there was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There's four things that take place here. Eve saw. Eve called it good. She delighted in it. And she took. Not only did Adam and Eve, were they tempted with what was bad and they gave into it, really the temptation here is they want to determine what is good and bad. They want to step outside of what God has called good and they want to determine what is good for themselves. As I talk about these things, we can start to see components of sin, not just back then, but our own sin and sin today as well. They want autonomy from God. They want to be able to judge what is good. They want want to use words to call things good on their own, out of their own judgment. Then what happens next? Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The next thing that comes is shame. What they wanted was to be more aware of what is good and evil. They wanted more of God's perspective. But they got more than what they bargained for. And they end up with shame. With shame. This is an awful, awful part of what took place. Because before this, Adam and Eve were flourishing. They have everything that they needed. God called it very good. They had everything that they needed in the world. They had everything that they needed in their relationship with one another. They had everything that they needed in their relationship with God. And then they turn, they give in to this temptation. They see, they call good, they delight, they take. And then there's shame. There's shame. This is because they have stepped outside of God's design for their lives. And their nakedness, which before was not a problem, is now a problem. They hide themselves. They make loincloths for themselves to shield themselves, to hide their shame from one another and from God. God designed man and woman to stand before one another, husband and wife to stand before one another naked and unashamed. Naked and safe, Naked and seeing what is beautiful. Naked with no shame. Naked in a way that was enjoyable for both. But they went their own way and what they received was shame. As we go throughout scripture, we're going to see a lot of people take things out of God's context for them, including marriage being a big one. And every time, there are consequences when we go our own way way. Verses 8 through 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
Did any of you have um, a house where wherever you slept was separate from where your parents were after you went to bed and you could hear them coming when you were supposed to be sleeping? I slept downstairs and my brother and I would be messing around throwing things across from one bed to the other. My mom's here. I hope she's not listening to this part. Uh, but we would be awake when we were supposed to be asleep and our stairs were really loud and we could hear when mom or dad were coming down the stairs. Some of you are nodding your head. You had a similar situation. And so what happens when you hear them coming? You see them flip on the light. You hear them walking down the hall. You hear them coming up or down the stairs. It's like psh, 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 psh. You get quiet and you, you hide, you start fake snoring. You're like, I'm asleep. You turn off the light, you hide the book, you do whatever. Mom and dad are coming. I'm in trouble. That's what Adam and Eve do here. The tragic thing is that they didn't have to do that before. The presence of God meant life before and now it means shame. They're ashamed to be in the presence of God. They don't want to be in the presence of God. If you hear your parents coming and you're not doing anything wrong, you've got nothing to worry about. But you usually are. That's why they're coming. Adam and Eve have sinned and gone outside of God's design for their life. And so now God's presence is bad. God's presence being naked before God. They feel ashamed. They feel like they're unworthy. They have continually been in the presence of God. And now God is asking the question, Adam, where are you? Their sin has brought a separation, at least in their understanding of who God is. God is good and merciful, and our shame keeps us from receiving what he wants to give us. We're very quickly going to go through the rest here. You see in verses 12 and 13, Adam and Eve blame one another. Adam says, the woman gave me the fruit. The woman says, the serpent told me to do it. There's the blame game. No one wants to own up to their own sin and their own separation. In verses 14 and 15, we read, The Lord God pronounced something, a curse to the serpent. He says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's a little bit of that that we can understand, but a little bit that we're like, I don't, I don't understand what's going on here. We'll go back to that. Verses 16 through 19, we see there will now be pain and toil in work. There will be pain and toil in childbirth. There will be enmity and pain and struggle and desires competing against one another in marriage. In verse 17, we see that even, even eating is disrupted. Before, eating was always an act of worship before God, but now even their eating is disrupted in verse 17. Verse 18, the very ground, nature itself, will produce thorn and thistles when it is to produce fruit and that which is good for eating. And the very last verse in verse 19, from dust you came and from dust you shall return. The curse of death. Physical death that man will not live forever. 
So what are the implications of what we are reading here in Genesis chapter 3? We can take away a few things and learn about our sin and rebellion. First, the divide between us and God. The first divide was between Satan and these third of the angels that went away from God's plan to be in the presence of God and work for God's glory. Then we see Adam and Eve separate themselves from God's plan. And by our nature and by our choice, we do the same. We are made in the image of God and we're made for the purpose of being his image. Um, Kings would send someone to be their image to represent themselves as they were moving into a new territory. Adam and Eve were to be made in the image of God. Or to use New Testament language, we're made to be ambassadors for God, his representatives. Adam and Eve had a royal stewardship in Eden. And in Eden, they were called to do a small version of what God intended to happen in all of creation. But instead of walking in the image and the ways of God, they desired their own autonomy to go their own way. And we do the same, and there's consequences. Next, there's toil. There's toil. As our community group was reading through Genesis 1, uh, one of the, my sisters in the group um, said that as she read through Genesis 1, the impression that she got is that God was really content in his work. That's so good. God kept saying he, it was good and then it was very good. God was content in his work. We're not. We are never content in our work. Not for a year, not for a month, not for a week, usually not even a whole day where we are content in our work. Okay, we're going to play a little uh, word association game here, kind of. Uh, raise your hand if you know who um, David Letterman is. Oh, more than my wife thought there would be. Awesome. That's a good start. Raise your hand if you know who Conan O'Brien is. Okay, a few more hands. Raise your hand if you know who Jimmy Fallon is. Okay, so work your way back from Jimmy Fallon, Conan O'Brien, David Letterman. There would be no Jimmy Fallon if there wasn't those first two guys, okay? Late night talk show host, very similar to Jimmy Fallon, and he is very much in their lineage. Anyway, I was listening to a podcast by David Letterman and Conan O'Brien. They were talking together. It's the first time they've talked for more than five minutes ever. And I wanted to preface all that so you know who I'm actually talking about. But they were talking, and Conan O'Brien was recounting a day when he was starting his show, and he, he was able to watch David Letterman, the whole process of the show being put on the whole week. He was able to watch the writers. He was able to watch the scheduling. He was able to watch through the whole show, the after show, the meetings, the whole thing. And Conan O'Brien said he watched in the audience and said, this is perfection. This is what I'm shooting for. This show is perfect, and they do this every night. And as Conan was saying that, David Letterman said, I, it is so surreal to hear you say that. Because in 33 years, I think we had a handful of good shows, and the rest were bad, and it was all my fault. He wasn't trying to be funny. It's really how he feels. You feel the same about your work, and I feel the same about my work. And I have my dream job. I get to serve this church full time and I'm never content in the work that God has given me to do. There is toil in our work. Work 
and education should provide meaning. Instead, they feel like toil. Raising kids should feel so meaningful, yet those feelings are few and far between. There is toil in the work that God has given us to do. There's enmity and strife in relationships. Chapter 4 of Genesis, right after the one we're studying tonight, chapter 4, the first kids, Cain, Abel. Cain kills his brother, the first siblings. One murders the other. There is strife and enmity in our relationships from the beginning. The first song, the first thing that we know as a song is Lamech in Genesis. It's a guy named Lamech. He's like Cain's great-great-grandson. He writes this song about how he's going to be a bigger murderer than Cain was. He's basically like singing like a mob boss. The first song in the Bible is talking about how much worse he's going to be than his great-great-grandfather. It's so sentimental. It's beautiful. <laughs> Enmity and strife in relationships. I mean, there's just a million examples of this, but throughout history, we see people coming up with these asinine race theories where they can treat other races like animals. That is just so far from God's design. So far from what we see when we see God's design for human flourishing. Mankind has come up with nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are literally taking God's creation and reversing it. We've done that. There's enmity and strife on a geopolitical scale in our families and in our own hearts. And ultimately, this leaves us living for the wrong kingdom. Von Roberts, in his uh, book that really goes through this story of God, says the kingdom of God is where the rule of God is gladly accepted. The kingdom of God is where God's rule is gladly accepted. Man, that sounds awesome. God's rule and kingdom are not always gladly accepted in my life. Sometimes I don't want the things of God, and I don't want what his kingdom wants and needs. I want what I want. I want my own comfort in my own way. The kingdom and rule of God is not gladly accepted in my heart or in our world. So these are the implications of the rebellion. Two more here. Chaos. Our fear, anxiety, our worry, our sadness, our anger come from knowing that things were not, are not, and will not be the way that they should be. Chaos in our lives. Chaos in our world. We do these things that we think are our own private sins, yet they have consequences for those around us. We have untethered things from God's design and it has brought chaos to our societies, to our families, to our churches, to our worlds. And lastly, decay. Decay in our very bodies, decay in the world around us. Cancer is one of the ultimate examples of this, the body literally turning on itself. So the world is in chaos, brokenness, and rebellion. The flesh that we live in every day is in a state of chaos, brokenness, and rebellion. And the devil is an enemy of God and his image 
bearers. We find ourselves in a culture, in a world that is not for the things of God. We even read in Psalm chapter 51, David say, Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. From our very birth, we are born into a life of sin. We have inherited a sin nature biologically. We have also been adopted into Adam's family, a family of sinners. Humanity is headed towards chaos and always has been. I think by now you can see that we can't get out of this on our own, nor can we get others out of it. Augustine said we cannot put straight in others what is crooked in ourselves. So many things we try to do, especially politically, try to fix other people, but we haven't identified the real problem. The real problem is in our own hearts. We can't get out of ourselves. The situation is too dire. It's not just based on our circumstances. And there's so much at stake. The next election won't fix it. Finding the right church won't fix it. Finding a spouse won't fix it. Finding the right book, going on an adventure, finding the right career, a new gadget, none of these things will fix it. So what do we do? Well, I'll tell you what several writers of the Bible and folks in the Bible did. They lamented. They looked at the world and they looked at God's promises and they say, This isn't adding up. A few lines from these psalms. For the sake of time, I won't read all of them. Why, O Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? O Lord, please not, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have sunk down deep into me. Your hand is come down upon me. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food all day and night. Why do they stand all day long and say, where is your God? How long will all of these people attack a man and batter him? They only plan to throw me down from my high position. Others bless me with their mouths, but inwardly they give me a curse. Lament says, does God's kingdom really exist? Lament says, I know what God promised, but I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it out there. I'm not seeing it in here. Lament says, does God's kingdom is, even exist? Or Lament says, God has a kingdom, but maybe I'm not invited. Or, as author A.J. Swoboda wrote, okay, maybe I'm invited to God's kingdom, but I am a squatter in the kingdom of God. I don't really belong there. You know why there's so many self-help books at the library and at the bookstore? Because none of them work. Self-help books try to get us out of our own problem that we create 
in Exodus 17 and also in Exodus 33, the people of God say to God, is God among us or not? God has delivered them. God has made them promise to them. God has done supernatural acts on their behalf and they say, is God with us or not? We can find ourselves asking the same question. Romans 8, 22 and 23 says that creation itself has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption and the redemption of our bodies. Creation and our very bodies and God's Spirit inside of us groan out because we know that things are not the way that they should be. Based on these verses, Andrew Peterson wrote this great line in his song, Come Back Soon. It says, We wake in the night in the womb of the world. We beat our fists on the door. We cannot breathe in a sea that swirls. So we groan in this great darkness. Are we alone in this great darkness? Tonight, we've asked the question, what's wrong with the world? Last week, we asked, what is my purpose? This week, we asked, what is wrong with this world? And we've gotten a few answers to what is wrong with this world. It is the rebellion in our own heart and is the suffering that we experience because of the rebellion of others and the rebellion in this world against the things of God. So, what can we do as we find ourselves in this place of what went wrong? The first one is, an action step is, we want you to know that this is a safe place to struggle. Clearly, clearly from what we've talked about here tonight, you're not the only one. So this should be a safe place to share your struggle. This week in our community groups, our community group leaders are going to ask the question, where do you see chaos in your life? Where do you see chaos because of your sin or the sin of others? Where do you see chaos because of suffering? This is a safe place to share in the struggle. We are all struggling. We all look at our lives and say, what has gone wrong? So this is a safe place to talk about that, to lean into community. We're about to come up on a season in our community groups where we really lean into community. We call it getting rooted, where we lean into community with one another. We focus on the spiritual disciplines. We provide soul care for one another. That just means listening well to each other's story and speaking the truth in love to one another. Lean into that. Lean into community and share your story. Next, we need to just lament. God can take it. I met a guy a few years ago that was struggling with anxiety, and I asked him if he's ever prayed when he was anxious. And his response was, I can't talk to God when I'm anxious. I said, can I show you a verse that says the exact opposite? In Philippians 4, it says, don't be anxious, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of Christ will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. 
lament. Take your anxiety, take your fear, take your sadness, take your anger, take your cries out to God. Take those to him. He can take it. Jesus, a character, another spoiler alert, he's coming in a couple weeks, he's kind of a big deal. And Jesus is being put to death. Jesus, the righteous one, being put to death by sinful man. And on the cross, he laments, he cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Before then, in the garden, he says, God, is there any other way to fulfill your plan? Jesus lamented, you can too. The writers of scriptures lamented, you can too. Next, read the Bible. Read the Bible. Five books in particular that I would recommend. Ecclesiastes. We went through a whole series on Ecclesiastes last winter. You can go back and listen to that. Read Ecclesiastes. Read the book of Job. Read the book of Isaiah for some hope that God will make right what is broken. There's a whole book called Lamentations. If you ever feel guilty for lamenting, just remember there's a whole book called Lamentations. It's going to be okay. You can lament. And then Psalms. Eugene Peterson calls psalms the, uh, it takes our emotional fragments and puts them into a prayer. Read the book of psalms. Read the Bible. Find companions and fellow sufferers as you read the Bible. Lastly, I want to encourage you to get help. Get help. Definitely lean into community, as I was talking about earlier, but you may feel like you need some additional help because of what you have struggled with, we want to encourage you to do that. We have a biblical counseling ministry here at the church where you can sit down with a trained counselor that can open up God's word with you and in a skilled way walk you through um, what God has to say specifically for you. Next week, we have our next theological forum, and it's on mental health. Encourage you to come and participate in that and, and listen to what our panel has to say about mental health. Lean into community, as I said. Grab a good book that helps address some of the things that you're wrestling with, specific things that we've mentioned here tonight. Here are some things that you can do as you try to figure out what went wrong. Would you turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3? and verse 15. I want to read this sentence again that we find in Genesis 3, verse 15. This is God speaking. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we take a look at this verse. This is God talking. And he's speaking to the serpent. And he is pronouncing a curse, not just on Adam and Eve or the ground. The curse is actually pronounced on this serpent. And God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, meaning the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We're told there that an offspring will come. And the pronouns he and his are used. God, from the very beginning, had a plan. And in Genesis chapter 3, 
right after Adam and Eve sin and go their own way, they are given a promise of redemption, given a promise of deliverance, given a promise of victory. And our enemy, God's enemy, the serpent, is told, you will be crushed by this offspring that will come. Come back next week and hear more about the promise of this offspring. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are not alone in this darkness. Thank you that your spirit is here. Thank you that your word is here. We can read your word. Thank you for these people around us, fellow strugglers and sufferers. God, thank you that we can have hope where there seems to be no hope. Thank you that we can lament and tell the truth about how we're feeling about things. God, thank you for your good design. Thank you for your promise. God, thank you that you walk through all things with us. God, in the very middle of your word in Isaiah chapter 40, this is what you offer your people. Comfort, comfort for my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's sing to our great God together.